Hey, hey, this is your Great Legs dude, Jeff Liske, coming to you on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, where we're going to be going rage angler on all things Great Lakes, from gear, fly, big water, and swinging flies, of course. If it concerns the Great Lakes, we've got you covered, so stay tuned to this next episode. Here we go. Our main man, Jeff Liske, is back on the podcast, and he's going to take a deep dive into all things steelhead today. But before we get there, let's hear a classic Elk Creek story right now. We're going to start this episode off with a little story on my first trip to Elk Creek in Pennsylvania in 1982. You know, it, it seems like the wheel was stoned back that long ago. I was just a gear angler, you know, did a little fly fishing, but mostly gear, bait, whatever it really took to catch, you know, the Salmonids and the Great Lakes steelhead that come out of Lake Erie, you know, I was just learning, right? So I uh, drove along Elk Creek and went up from Lake Road, which is just a little south of Lake Erie there, and wandered my way over to one of the accesses, which was close, was the old hatchery at the time where they raised all the salmon, coho and Chinook salmon in there, and walked my way past the raceways, and I see the cohos in there, and the, the kings in there, and I was like following this little trail down to the river and uh, I got out to the river and it's pretty darn clear, like almost unlimited visibility. And I just didn't even realize which way to go, you know, upstream, downstream. I was like, oh my goodness, where do I start? So I see these big, old, tall, viaduct, conrail, arch stone bridge. I says, well, it looks like a pretty decent place to fish. So I walked my way down and I walked my way in there and worked my way across the river and I saw that the river was flowing on river right more than river left. So I worked my way out to the middle uh, support system and it was a heck of a hole. Top to bottom was over 100 feet, all shaded up underneath with the sun just glistening in that top end of the run there. And I, my eyes focused and I, I looked in there and I was like, oh, it looks strange. I really can't see the depth of what's going on there. Then all of a sudden, the whole bottom moved. And I was like, blinked my eyes and I rubbed my eyes and I was like, took my glasses off and I was like, what the heck? And I looked in there again and there were hundreds of fish piled into this run from top to bottom. There were Great Lakes steelhead, there was salmon in there, both species. And the crazy thing was there was these big giant golden palominos at the time Pennsylvania was playing around with. And actually some of them were actually true palominos. They were all white. It was crazy. So, of course, inevitably, you know, I started floating my eggs through there and that and started catching them. And, you know, they were averaging 22 to 24 inches and some up to 31 inches. I, you know, breaking lines and just learning the game, right? But the crazy thing, you know, we used to call that area the tubes. It was one of the most famous places on Elk Creek. And uh, back then, you know, you'd be lucky to see an angler once every two, three weeks. You know, maybe a couple guys here and there. Just things were just getting rolling. But um, so those that stone viaduct bridge about, you know, I think it was 1985. I go back there and go back, you know, three years later, you know, fishing almost every other day out there. And I'm walking through the hatchery to go park and I look and it was all water. So three years later, that viaduct collapsed. And I always think to myself, and it flooded out, must have been 20, 30 feet deep. I was just thinking to myself, what in the world if that collapsed when I was there? 
So if you get a little chance, look up the uh, Conrail Archstone Viaduct Bridge south of Route 5 on Elk Creek, PA, and you'll see how bad it was flooded. They dynamited it, and um, I wasn't there when they did it, but there was pictures of it was sucking out trailer campers because there was a campsite just below it, and they were sucking them right down river, right out Route 5, out to the lake. It was a pretty big event, but they had to clear the river because it was starting to back up, you know, many feet deep. But that was just the first time I stepped into Elk Creek, and I just remember I just... What happens if I was underneath there when that whole viaduct caved in when I was fishing? That's my story. And uh, now we're going to get going and dive deeper into this episode. And there we go. A classic Jeff Liskay story. And now time to jump into the main content we've all been waiting for. The roadmap to Steelhead success. Step by step. Now we're going to dive into this episode and get right into the uh, how to build a roadmap to success chasing Great Lakes steelhead and salmon. Just going to go on record, the map was going to vary like crazy from each state all the way down to the individual rivers themselves, but it's just going to give you a good starting point um, if you're just getting into the game of like how to go about it, right? And it's just going to be some bullet points too for some Hardcore veterans, too, so stay tuned and listen in. You know, think of our the rivers as conveyor belts and elevators where fish use pools and structure to navigate upstream to their spawning grounds. You know, the fish aren't coming up to feed. You know, they're coming up basically to spawn. Some are going to be successful. Some are not. Each river has its own signature and personality that you need to understand from the flows to the run timing, you know, and everything in between, right? They're just, the Great Lakes region is really, really diverse. And that's what makes it such a unique systems all of in itself. Uh, Jerry Darkus coined the term inland oceans, and uh, that's exactly what they are. Um, freshwater inland oceans and that we chase all sorts of fish, but we happen to have just a very good, sustainable population of these migratory fish. You know, from the streams in the northern end that empty into Superior, you know, to the north shore, the south shores of Lake Erie, to all the way to the east end of Ontario, they differ so widely, right, in consideration. You got to consider everything. There's a lot of different factors, you know, before you even, you know, wet your fly. You know, the first thing I think is that you have to understand, make a mindset um, of what's a realistic catch rate, right? So when I go out for the conditions, if I'm in, you know, just, just throw this out here. If I go to British Columbia within the last four or five years or four years um, with a downturn of fish populations, I mean, I'm happy for one fish for six days of hard fishing with maybe a couple other connections. Um, that's expectations. If I'm in Michigan, I might say maybe 1.5 fish per day. Ohio, you know, it can go, you can get really good days. In Pennsylvania, you can. But in general, I would like to say one to three fish per day. Um, would be very realistic. And New York's on about the same pace. You know, and this is not set in stone. Don't, don't, 
think I'm quoting numbers of what's going to happen. But realistically, um, there are areas that you're going to have a higher percentage chance of catching more fish. And then, of course, you, you've got to realize what your technique's going to be too, right? If it's going to be a swung fly or indicator, stripping streamers or whatever it is too. And then Mother Nature's going to throw in some curveballs that might lower your success rate too. So the next thing you're going to have to consider is, is it ground fed the stream or is it a runoff water source? So there's a huge difference in this, right? So the south shores of all the Great Lakes and along the Gary Ryum, they're all you know, runoff rivers. And these are really non-existent in the summer. And they're really heavily reliant upon precipitation snow melt where Michigan has a lot of ground fed streams and springs that are enter and these rivers do get low but never to the point of a state of urgency like it does in Ohio and Pennsylvania on the spate rivers. New York has um, some nice spring fed rivers mostly the salmon river is and a lot of you know some have dam release that keeps the water levels up so it's not as crucial as it is on you know the steelhead alley as we call it so those are things you have to consider just you know looking into the flows and things but you know check the box for that and then the stream character um you're going to have two distinct stream characters in the great lakes you're going to have um the ones that carry a real heavy tannin the dark brown waters that are from superior streams all the way down through michigan um into wisconsin and then eventually they start to lose their tannins and you're going to start to get into what I call like a, a heavy silt load systems. The, the terrain is going to be flatter um, on the western end of Lake Erie. It's mostly agricultural in and around the south, the southern part of Michigan and Wisconsin. It's fairly flat terrain. There's not much gradient to these streams and they carry a real heavy silt load and they and they just they muddy up and they really get a lot of grittiness to them very quickly. And this continues all the way through the spate rivers of Ohio, the shale. But as you start getting and moving east, there's a steeper gradient when you come out of the agricultural land um, from the western end of Lake Erie going up to, towards Pennsylvania. These streams clear very quickly. Um, in retrospect, from east to west, you know, you might have a stream that's on the 20-mile creek, say, New York, Pennsylvania border. That's just a small one, but it, it might clear as fast as 17 hours or less where it might take a week for a stream on the western end of Lake Erie to clear. So that just gives you a, a, a run timing thing, how the heavy silt loads really come into play. The strains of fish would be the next. Um, you've got three. You've got the spring and you've got the winter, and you've got fall. We have a few opportunities for summer-run skamani fish in and around the southern portion of Lake Michigan streams and Indiana, and there are some up in Lake Superior in the far end, east end of Lake Ontario. So there are some places to chase summer-run steelhead, but in general, um, we have the spring, winter, and fall run in understanding that. And let's just go on record. If you have a spring fish, it doesn't mean it won't run till spring. The Mother Nature protects itself. It could come in at any time. Same with the winter fish, it could come in very early in the fall. 
and a fall fish could come in depending on the, the, the amount of water these fish could come in as early as september so there's there's all sorts of factors that you know you have to take in consideration and that's sort of where we're going to go now is the success starts before you leave the house you know the big difference between a fishing guide and the average anglers it's not so much skill set for sure, right? I mean, there's plenty of anglers that are way more skill set than myself and probably can, you know, outfish me five out of five days. What we're really good is we're really good observers during the course of the day, but we're very good at changing during the course of the day and then also very intimate with our home waters. Understanding like when you string three or four days in a row, we know sort of where the pods of fish are. We have a network of guides that we work with and say, you know, well, that area is not as good. And that's going to be your job is to be sort of like your own little fishing guide yourself. We have our finger on the pulse and we know every rock in the river on a daily basis. Your job is, you know, put together a game plan way before your trip. So if your trip is on a Saturday and you're going to leave Friday night and take a ride somewhere and lodge and then make a, your first trip on Saturday morning, you need to have some game plans. You need to have a game plan A, where you are going to plan to start and what you plan on doing, then a backup plan B, just in case A doesn't work out to your, you know, what you're you know, anticipating, and then C, which sometimes happens, and, you know, believe it or not, when the house of cards comes falling down, you might even have to have a you know a D plan for a successful outing. So all these things have to come into play. The most successful anglers are the ones who can adjust the quickest during the course of the day. And that's just one of those things that are just, it just comes with experience and just observing what's going on during the course of the day. And sometimes, you know, the fish just bite. Let's face it, that's just the way it is. And everybody's having a great day, you know, but you need to look at the flows in advance. Not only are the flows of the day of your fishing excursion, but what the flows were doing a month ahead of that. Were there huge spikes of water to get the fish farther upstream? Was there, was there only one rain event in the flow charts you know, show you that there's just not enough water to get a bunch of fish upstream, so most of the fish are going to be lower to midstream. What were the water temperatures? Was it even cool enough for them to bring it in? Um, was it too cold and it slowed down their migration upriver? So these are things you should consider before you, you know, throw a dart at your plan A. And then the clarity is going to, you know, be the big part too. Um, a lot of streams, you know, Michigan streams generally stay fairly clear, but, you know, Wisconsin streams, Ohio streams, PA streams, and some of New York streams, they can get fairly turbid. It's a double-edged sword. These fish get rested because there's a lot of days you can't fish because it's just so gritty. Um, they might, it might be as long as a week since an angler's been able to actually go fishing in and they're and they sort of forget the deck gets shuffled. They forgot they got caught. They forgot there was a bunch of anglers on them. And when the water clears, of course, it's it's really good fishing. And then there's the other streams, a lot of Michigan streams. It's seven days a week, entire season that they fish. And the fish get a really good stream savvy, right? So you're, 
you're going to have to do a little thinking on plan A and B if, if the fish have been, you know, really, really pounded hard too. So, and then of course, you know, another tool is using social media. It's a, it, it's awesome, right? But um, it can also be a really bad tool um, in the regards of, it always seems like there's being fish being caught. Well, just because it says Instagram doesn't mean it's that fish was caught, of course, that day. It could be weeks ago. You need to sort of filter through that and just realize that the last few weeks there has been some fresher fish caught. There's fish moving around and don't let it get you frustrated if you go out on your routing and you don't catch and have this same success or maybe even get skunked. So let's let me just go on record this this people put high expectations on being you know catching fish I know it and that's a guide's report card to catch a fish but I get skunked just as much as anybody else and actually um, it's perfectly fine to get skunked it's actually you learn more on the days you get skunked or zero fish than you do when you just have one of those you know catch them all the time days. Those days are really fun, and we and you're going to get those, and I get those. But in general, I usually say, "Boy, how did? Why did that day just? You know, why did I stink the day up? Like, did I do something wrong? Was it me? Was it my flies? Was it my area? Was it the river? Because there's always somebody who figures the puzzle out. That's the thing. So that's just one thing, just to keep behind you, you know, a feather behind your ear. Just that you know, a skunk trip is no big deal shake it off right and then visiting your local fly shop um, and keeping in contact if you have a guide that you've used before you know if they're most guides are pretty cool they'll you know give you a little bonus say hey yeah the fish are in go here you know if you want to try it you know do it yourself it just shortens the learning curve you know and uh, gives you confidence and you know you're heading in the right direction before you even walk out the door so after you do your homework questions of a stream that will be our next topic and you have to make a report card for each river before you making the decision to fish one right that's sort of my game plan is be really simple divide things up into three and then I make a report card on each river you know as uh you know over the years I've made tons of like little little Excel spreadsheets and just like, you know, what to expect over the years. Now I'm pretty good just doing it in my head, but what is the geological makeup of the stream, right? That's the first thing. Is it is it going to clear quickly? Where's the, you know, where's the headwaters? But the main thing is what is the geological makeup? Is it heavy tannins? Is it a spate river? Is it just a huge river, say like this, you know, the St. Mary's or the Niagara River? Is there going to be a dam release during the course of the day? What, you know, what's going on there for geological makeup? The size of the watershed, you know, there's a huge difference, right? If there's a huge size of the watershed, you got to figure out, are you going to fish river right or river left? Um, and then there's always the question is that there are barriers, right? There's a lot of waterfalls on the north shores of Lake Superior where the fish can't get up more than a quarter or half a mile. And there's a lot of, you know, man-made structures on Michigan rivers. And there's actually a few dams in Ohio too that impede their progress and they can't get over. So just make sure you know they're, what is the farthest upstream these fish can traverse up the river system. Are there fish ladders, right? I mean, if you're on the Grand River in Michigan, they can get all the way up to, 
you know, all the way into the, the capital in, in Lansing, Michigan. So it's, you know, that's one thing. The next is going to be tributaries. Do these river systems, um, especially the larger ones, do they have uh, any tributaries? That's going to be your go-to during super high water events. Um, these fish will push into these tributaries. They they warm quicker in the spring, so the fish will gravitate to them. They also cool quicker in the fall time, so a lot of times they there's not enough water for the fish to go up them in the fall. There's no reason, but they like to orient in and around creek mouse and tributary mouse is a really good area, you know, downstream of them in the fall and a really good area to, to fish them up inside the streams and around the mouse in the springtime. Um, so just always look for tributaries. And a lot of times that's some of the some of the places that are stocked too. So make sure you check that out. And then water temperatures um, are very key, but I think a water temperature thing is in relationships to the other rivers that are surrounding the river you plan on fishing. You know, you have to you have to have a means and methods of looking at some rivers are going to be a little warmer than others. They could have had some type of uh, weather event. Like in my area, we have a lot of snow that um, comes in on the eastern end of Lake Erie, and we get much colder river conditions than we do on the western end, especially after a snow event, too. So just try to always put yourself in a little warmer water conditions than you can if it's cold. And then the, the reverse mirror image of that would be when you have a cold front or a cooler situation and you're getting close to the end of the season, geographically, um, South Shore Lake Erie streams are over and you're going to have streams like up on Superior that the steelhead run in May is just beginning because of temperatures and the Niagara River fishes really good in May because the temperature is not from a river it's from Lake Erie war you know warming up so that doesn't really get going until May either so this just always check which there's options in your area for water temperatures and then compare water clarity, you know, to the other streams. Does the water clarity clear faster, slower? Does it stay the same clarity? Because that is going to be your, probably your Achilles heel most of the time in some of our geographic areas, streams that run into the Great Lakes, is they need to be able to see the fly. The kiss of death is cold, dirty water. That's your expectations are going to be super low. I just got my butt handed to me um, Tuesday and uh, of last week, and I never got a fish. We only got a few grabs because it was cold, dirty water, but was sort of expected though. And then the last is going to be um, angling pressure. Is that is probably the hardest thing to overcome is um, the competition with your fellow angler. Everybody's sort of nice to each other, but we're all sharing the water. There's two different mindsets, right? Um, you can wake up at old dark 30, get your headlamp out, barge down to your favorite hole or wherever you plan on going with your, your game plan A and lock up a pool. Or you could just sort of wait till everybody fishes their first run in the morning and runs around with their heads, you know, heads cut off. And then when they're talking about leaving around 3 o'clock, you can fish that later evening and um, not have to worry about like stressing out over locking up a hole. So I'm usually the one who wanders down to the stream leisurely in the morning, but fishes late. 
Um, I'm not one to wake up at old dark 30 to lock a hole up, but they both work. And then the run timing and the strain, as we talked about before, you have to do that research. So that's just um, the questions of the stream. You have to constantly answer yourself. And this, this goes on that questions of the stream is going to go on with you know a learning table, but um, it's your homework and also why you're on the river. So then the next thing is as you're working down this whole list of putting a game plan together and getting ready to go out fishing is I call it the steelhead or sixth sense. It's first one is going to be um, angling method. You know, you have to sort of have that game plan too and get prepared. You know, am I going to swing, you know, swung flies, swinging flies? Am I going to strip streamers? Am I going to bring my indicator rod? Do I want to try out my really cool, you know, new long nymphing stick and high stick them in Euro nymphing? That's been a pretty big trend in some of the smaller streams, very effective. So do I really want to, you know, engage with that? And does the stream allow me to do that? You know, where to start, right? We just went over how to make a report card uh, before you go. So that's how you know where to start. And then another one is when you get there is the life stage of fish, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But just to go on record, once the run starts sometime, and let's just call it October, everywhere it's got some type of migratory fish in it by October what the life stage is going to be right so if it if are they fresh coming in have they been in for you know a weeks or months or whatever as you get later in the season a transition fish and then there's eventually going to be the ones that come in in the fall they're going to start spawning in November and December so are they in the spawning mode and then there are situations where those early fall fish are done spawning and they're dropping back out to the one of the Great Lakes and they're done by December. And they've already went through the process of spawning and you're catching fish that are done spawned out by December. So those are the sort of the life stages and they all use different types of waters and... Um, that's what you sort of have to start understanding is the life stage of a fish once it enters the river. Quick break for a word from our sponsor. With over 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angler's Coffee team is here to serve you every step of the way, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. They are responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices. You can rest easy knowing you are doing your part. And uh, like I've said before, they roast it and they ship it within 48 hours, 48 hours. And you know, um, I'm actually drinking coffee right now and it's super late in the evening and I've got that thing where I can drink coffee and still sleep. Raise your hand if you're like me, but I definitely love coffee and anglers is the coffee that I love most and, uh, and it's no brainer. Anglers is doing good stuff, giving back to great companies uh, great fly fishing companies, great conservation groups, and they have probably the best coffee out there. So it's a pretty easy call. If you want to um, step it up a bit, this is it. This is a pretty easy one to do. This is like, um, this is kind of like your 1% for the planet, anglers, coffee style. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go, tea bag option, and a rose sampler, you know, Joe. And the anglers team has you covered. 
It's time to step up to better coffee and more impact for the fish species and causes we all love. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash anglers right now to get a great bag of greatness to your door. That's anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S. Let's make a change today for great coffee. The length of the trip, right? That's another one. You know, if you're going to go just a couple hours and stick around your home river, your closest river, that's fine. Um, if the river's in great condition. But if you want to have the best success, you need to really, I have no problem making a long drive for good stream conditions. I mean, I've been noted to drive more than fish less to get to the right water. So it's all about, we talked about that clarity where the fish can see it. Um, You know, 18 inches of visibility or more is really great. 18 inches of visibility or less your success is going to go down dramatically. doesn't matter where you're fishing. Um, and then the calendar year. Um, the calendar year, um, like I said, it drastically changes from north to south, not so much from east to west, but it does change. Um, and then you correlate like when the best time is when you did your homework on the run strain and when they come in. But generally speaking... I would have to say second week of October to the second week of December is going to be peak steelhead season in the Great Lakes. Um, and then you have the sporadic winter season. And by the second week of February, when we start getting a little bit of warming trends, your spring fish are going to start coming and your your winter fish are going to start spawning. And then I would say in general, other than northern streams and Niagara, by the second week of April to the last week of April, things are starting to wind down. And by Mother's Day, um, mid-May, a lot of this is over with. Um, so that's just to give you a little idea of the calendar year. When to move? You know, when to move, you know, it's a great question, right? I think that's one of the questions I get asked all the time. You know, how do I know how fast I go? Well, rule of thumb, you know, it depends if you're walking or waiting, right? Because uh, or you're floating, that's another, you know, another way to approach these is, you know, float fishing and down with a raft or on a jet sled or whatever. Rule of thumb is cold or dirty water, you have to move slower. Clear or warmer water, you move faster until you get a signal from the fish, right? That's going to be your game plan. You know, if you're floating and the water is dirtier and colder, you don't want to bite off a huge chunk of water. You want to bite off as a shortest float as almost possible to soak and marinate those flies in the water longer but if it's a little bit clearer you're and you can really push through and drag fur through all the holes and you know you're gonna have better success where to go next you know is it is it around the bend downstream upstream is it relocate to a different section what about even just relocating to another river right that's always been a question and that's that goes with that whole plan a b c and d there are sometimes my plan C and D is to go to another river. Might not even be the same river. It's could go to another river, right? Um, you might even uh, you know, might even have to like, all right, you know, everything is just fall apart, and um, I might just have to retrace my you know steps and you know go back over where I already fished too. 
you know, the the angling pressure, like we talked about, is the hardest to come, you know, overcome, right? Um, I think one tip I can give you too, it would be that fish the areas with the less anglers in it. It might not have as many fish per running acre of water, but you are not going to share those fish with other anglers. You know, you're going to split the pie up. You know, if there's a whole bunch of fish in a section, there's a whole bunch of anglers, you're all going to do the same, but it won't be very pleasurable because you're going to be bumping in each other. Um, you have to lower your expectations for the day with the anglers, but, you know, you might have to downsize your flies if possible. If the water's clear enough, you might have to start lining down with your tippet and leader sizes. Um, there's all ways to deal with it, but that's going to be the number one um, obstacle I think that I have to deal with every on a daily, you know, daily basis. And then, of course, if you put all that together sometime around noon or so, you should develop a pattern, right? And I always say that um, steelhead can talk. You know, they can't talk to you like, you know, I'm talking to you now, right? Per se, but they will let you know: Are they moving? up the system are they resting just sort of like taking a little chill break on the way up or are they actually holding the river low enough and there's no fresh fish coming in are these fish really holding and then we talked about uh, the life stages of them we have to figure that out um one of my favorite fish is you know is the is the dropbacks once those start coming around the beginning of december and we've had a lot of them through the course of the winter this year from the fall fish and uh a lot of people call them downstreamers, drop backs, or, you know, out west they call them, you know, re-chromers. That's pretty cool, right? Re-chrome. We start to re-chrome on the way back down. Um, so now what, you know? Let's move on, right? We've made this sixth sense. We've got a game plans. Now this is where the rules of three start to come into play. And it's a really simple. If you sort of just follow the basic business <laughs> You know, application when you get trained in business school is that you have to execute, you have to evaluate, and adjust. So you go to the river, you execute plan A, you evaluate it, and if it doesn't work, you have to adjust. And this goes from not only from run to run, this goes from cast to cast. That's really important. Um, to do that every cast. Was the presentation correct? Evaluate it. Do I need to adjust to make that last swung fly presentation better? Did I make the right men's to get my indicator in the right position or the right speed? That's the really simple way to look at. There's three right there. Execute, evaluate, adjust. And then the next is going to be with your game plan, you need to divide the section in the whole river into three sections. We talked about finding their furthest upstream limitations. We know where they're coming in from, what Great Lakes, if it's Erie, Michigan, Huron, wherever they're coming from, Ontario. Um, we need to figure, you know, where, how far can they go up? And then we need to divide this river into three sections. Find the tributaries. Divide it up into three sections. Get yourself a nice hard copy map. 
I don't deal with very well-looking digitally maps. My brain absorbs it way better by getting a gazetteer, um, getting a hard copy map in front of me, and literally looking at it. And my brain seems to put it in its cache memory better when I look at hard copies, and I roll it out on the floor, and I actually look at it. And I can see, okay, there's bends. Um, and that's going to be, um, you start out, what I consider once you divide it up into three, is I always start out in the lowest section possible. If I can stay in the lower third of the river, I'm a happy camper. I really don't want to have to chase stale fish upstream and darker fish. I, you know, They're going to be a little harder to catch, a little more stream savvy. I prefer to get the fish that are fresh coming out of the lakes. They're pretty aggressive. Um, they're nice and bright. So there's many advantages to that. The same with salt water. If it can stay closer to the salt, the, the more fresh they are. That's pretty cool too. Uh, very aggressive, you know. And then you might find yourself that um, you have to start moving upstream because the lower river a lot of times is the highest pressure rivers. And then find the middle section. And you fish that for a couple hours or so, right? Maybe evaluate your efforts by 10 a.m., right? And then you need to move from that middle section. And, um, hey, I didn't catch as much there. And then evaluate your efforts by 1 p.m. And then you might end up finding yourself going up to the upper third section that you divided up. And you might find out that there's some fish up there that's been up there for a while if you've had enough flow. They might be up there against, uh, you know, some barrier, a dam or a waterfalls or something that stopped their migration. And there might be quite a few there starting to stage to spawn. Say, I'd say by the second or third week of November, it's high expectations if we've had some water on the Great Lakes that you could find fish in the upper sections of these rivers. Not a whole lot of rain or snow melt or something, they might not get it. Um, I will say that if you're a swung fly fisherman, you will find that you will have um, some encounters that aren't as aggressive because these fish have had some stream savvy. They might have been caught before in the upper section. They might have been nor near spawn, and they're more intent on spawning. So they might, they might show themselves. They might pluck it. They might grab it. You might even hook one, and you might lose it. You say, "Why? You know, what the heck did I do wrong?" You, you really didn't do nothing. It's just a, it's the disposition of a, what we call stale, a stale fish. It's been in the river for a while. It, it's might have been caught, so it just doesn't get on the fly as much as a, a brighter fish, a fresher fish in the lower river where it's really coming in to attack your fly. It's, it's meaning business, if that makes sense. Um, well, after you do that, um, you fished the three sections, and you really haven't found McSixx. Um, if you got enough gas in your tank, you can go right back down to where you found the best action. One of my tricks is usually um, is to fish low, work my way up through the system as the crowds come in the lower river, and then generally the last hour before dark, I will circle back and then refish the lowest section of the river when, the, when most of the angling pressure has been reduced. Um, and try to reconnect with some of those fresher fish in the lower rivers, which is a pretty good idea. So after you've dissected the river system into three, we got to start dissecting the entire run itself, right? 
So I told you to divide the river up into three sections. Now I'm telling you that let's put the magnifying glass on and let's start like digging in deeper. And you're going to need to break the run up into three sections, meaning that there's the head of the run, the shallow head where it enters. There's the gut of the run, which is where the deepest part of the run is. And then you've got the tail out. And that's going to be basically how you have to look at a run. If you're fishing a small stream, this whole operation of head to tail could be 30 feet. Really small creek. On an average river, it could be 200 feet. If you're a Michigan stream or a larger stream, it could be a quarter mile. So, you know, there's always a head, there's always a gut, and there's always a tail. Usually, rule of thumb, that out of those three, because of water flow or temperature, they are only being two out of the three. If the water is really, really, say, warm, they're going to definitely be in the head of the pool. If the water is really, really cold, they're going to be probably in the tail out of the gut. So that's just basic rule of thumb. There's one other one besides those three is if you have a blowout situation. Um, you know, I call it the bonus area is the stream edges, right? When the stream blows out, and there's different levels of blowout, right? But usually when it blows out, they can't be in the head, gut, or the tail because it's too the current is just too much for them to, to fight. So they just basically move to the banks. They're very, very predictable. And if you have water clarity to fish the banks, you're, you're going to catch fish. So um, there is the stream edges blowouts. Um, and that's what's so cool. There's only usually two out of three, and you'll we'll get into a little more about you know exactly how to and when you start dissecting it. But what I'd really like to emphasize is that now that you've divided up the run into threes, I want you to take a lot of timeouts and just take a look at the water that you're fishing in front of you. Everybody gets so intent to get there and start flailing around, and I'm guilty too. Trust me, I want to get my fly on there and go fishing or my clients. But um, you need to be a visionary and try to pick out ground zero where the first fish is going to come from. If the water, like I said, you know, if it's like if you can see there's a water speed change, you got to be, you know, you got to hunt one fish at a time. Is there a rock or is there a seam that looks super fishy to you? You know, and make sure your presentations through that area are perfect. Um, and then, you know, you look upstream and you look downstream. But one tip I can give you as you're like, take these breaks is the stream always gives up her secrets when you look upstream. When you're looking downstream, um, it sort of looks featureless. But when you look upstream and you see how the rivers are actually like an elevator and you see these flat, glassy pools, it's just one of those things that you can say, oh, that's the reason why I caught those fish there. There was a little bit of a, a gradient change from down to a flat area where the pool was. And that's why we call it elevators, right? They come up to these pools and they ray and then they traverse up the next set of rapids. So just take breaks and really look at what's going on in front of you, upstream and downstream of you, and just absorb uh, what's really going around in your environment. 
So let's talk about the expectations once you get in the run, right? So once you get to the run, and I'm telling you to look at and pick apart this run and divide it into threes, and then look for the ground zero spots where you think the high percentage spots are, I want you to grid it off. I want you to mentally put a piece of graph paper on the entire area that you plan on fishing, but mainly right in front of you. And I want you to visualize little square blocks on the surface of the river. And the reason why is, is because we need to understand what the steelhead's awareness zone is going to be for the day. So if the water is really cold, their awareness zone is going to be very small. I like to call it a 3D box. So if you imagine putting these small cubes in front of a fish you plan on catching, if the water is cold and dirty, the presentation is going to be within a 6 inch by 6 inch awareness zone box. So nymph fishing is going to be a really, really good application because if you bump one of the nose, they can see it. If you're a swung fly angler and they only have 6 inches of a window because of dirty water or cold water, and this fish won't move vertically or horizontally for your presentation because of one of the two factors, temperature or water clarity, you're going to have to adjust. So what's piece of graph paper that you put on the surface of the water, what's going to end up happening is, is that if the water's dirty and cold, you're going to make really small squares and make sure that your fly gets in each one of those little small cubes just like you know just make very meticulous of how you cover it if the water is warmer and in my book warm is 40 40 degrees 38 40 degrees or warmer getting into the 50s is really good then you could be start to fish really aggressive if the water is say two foot visibility and more um, these fish are going to come for your fly these fish are going to move for your presentation they're going to be more apt to really, really show you that, you know, the bite is on, comparatively speaking, that if it was not as much. So always think about the fish's awareness zone, what they're able to do, if the fish is fresh, you know, if is it stale, you know, do I have to make more casts in his awareness zone because of many factors? Um, and think what you need to do to put it in that fish's wheelhouse for them to get on your presentation. That's sort of where I'm going to stop this episode. Um, I hope, you know, that we started to build this roadmap. I hope you enjoyed and picked up a few tips. Um, if you got a few questions answered yourself, um, if you have any questions, feel free to send them my way or Dave's way. And we'll make sure we'll get them answered or maybe even bring them up on the next episode. Next one, you know, our episode, I'm going to dig into this last nuts and bolts of the roadmap to success um, on presenting the flies and the go-to flies that you're going to need in your box in and around the Great Lakes. If you want to connect with me and chat with me, you can always find me at greatlakesflyfishing.com on my website. Hit me up there. You can find me on Instagram at Great Lakes Dude, Facebook at Jeff Liske, 
Um, there's many ways to find me. You can hit up Dave um, himself. Thanks for the listen and catch you on the next episode. That's a wrap. Jeff Liskey on the Great Lakes Dude podcast, part of the Wet Fly Swing podcast and Swing Outdoors. I want to thank Jeff again for putting this one together. I can't get enough of the steelhead action. I hope you enjoyed that one. And, uh, and I'm excited to keep this rolling. Jeff's going to continue putting together content, and he's going to keep pumping out not just steelhead, but he's going to cover many episodes in the Great Lakes. So if you have a chance to connect with Jeff, please do that anytime and let Jeff know that you had a chance to listen to this podcast right now. That would be amazing. Uh, one quick reminder before we get out of here, we will be doing the Steelhead School this year. And not only are we going to be doing, uh, we're actually doing a couple of Steelhead Schools, but we are doing the Jeff Liske School uh, this year in uh, in the Great Lakes. This is going to be Lake Erie. We uh, don't have the exact plans, but it's going to be at least as epic as last year. And it might be even bigger because we may be adding a couple of states uh, to the mix here uh, this year. You can check it out anytime, wetflyswing.com slash steelhead school is the best chance you can check that out and uh and if it's open right now you can check in and sign up and uh, and we'll check back with you when we get a chance that's it for now can't wait for the next time we can get on the water with jeff and hear him knock it out of the park we're heading out of here thanks again for listening and we will talk to you soon